0: You may be seated. This morning, we have a real treat. Uh, I have a friend of mine, Dr. Robbie Waddell, here with us. He, teach at Southeast, he teaches at Southeastern University along with um, Chris Green, and they've been friends for a long time, a decade or more, and uh, I got to know Robbie about five years ago or so. He's, the best thing I can say about him, the true thing I can say about him is what Jesus said about Nathaniel when... Nathaniel walks up to him, and Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Guile means craftiness, working on another agenda that isn't right, really very clear. And Robbie, Dr. Waddell, is one of those kind of guys that the more you get to know him, the more you realize he doesn't have an agenda. He's just very open, very beautiful heart. He's in the process of working with the Order of St. Anthony that... Um, is kind of housed in the diocese of St. Anthony that our church is part of um, and this is kind of the center of that and he's in process as we call him an ordinand he's in process of, of uh, being ordained as a deacon which will happen next month we have a retreat that's coming here where people around the country are coming and we'll have a Sunday night uh, ordination service for four of the uh, Ordinans, they call them, that are going to be um, uh, uh, ordained as, into the diaconate as deacons. And then he'll continue his journey to the priesthood uh, through this next year. We're very excited about him. I'm, I'm just delighted that he's here. He pastors also a church called Oasis. Uh, we, we feel like sister churches, right? They're not uh, technically politically in the uh, Diocese of St. Anthony, but they certainly are organically in the Diocese of St. Anthony. We pray for them. Uh, when we pray for the churches and the diocese. So we are, would you please give a very warm welcome to Dr. Robbie Waddell. Thanks, Love you, friend. Thanks, if,
1: if, if you would, uh, stand with me. The Old Testament passage uh, from the lectionary for today is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, And if you indulge me, I'm going to actually read a couple of extra verses. So Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian." For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and his name, and he is named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward forevermore. Let's pray. God in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, we love you, and we are grateful for your love for us. This morning, we pray that your Spirit would rest upon us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill our hearts with gratitude for what you have done and are doing. Fill us, Lord, with compassion for your world and our neighbors. Fill us with courage so that we might respond to the word that we hear. Fill us with joy so that we might have the strength to continue. And fill us with hope as we look forward to your coming again. In the name of Jesus, and the presence of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Listen, it it really is my delight to be with you this morning. I've uh, known of Sanctuary for quite a long time. As Bishop Ed told you, uh, Chris Green is an old friend of mine. We were friends back when he used to live in Oklahoma. And then when he moved to Tennessee, he taught at the seminary that I had attended. Um, And then just a couple years ago, I guess a year and a half, he and Julie... And the kids moved to Lakeland, and he, he and I teach at the same school, and we attend the same church. In fact, the church that I pastor, Chris, is preaching there this morning. And so here, I'm preaching here, and I guess next week, as I understand it, Chris will be here, and I'll be back at Oasis. So tag-teaming a bit. I do uh, love this season of Epiphany. I mean, I love all the seasons of the church calendar. You know, as we kind of celebrate Advent, it's full of expectation full of anticipation, you know, expecting the birth of the child, and then the child is born in Christmas, and we celebrate that. That, that birth of a child is something, you know, very special. I'm the father of six girls, and so we've had, we've had a lot of births that we have, we have experienced, and mostly, you know, that's all joy but we all we all know that there's a lot of hardship that kind of comes through that as well. Uh, we actually, uh, I say we, um, my wife uh, gave birth uh, to the first four. The last two uh, came to live with us about three years ago. Um, somewhat unexpectedly, we thought maybe for the short term. As it turns out, it's for the long term. Uh, so about a year and a half ago, we adopted them. And so we've just kind of expanded our family. But all of that, anticipation of the child, I mean, part of it is we don't really know what they're going to be like when they grow up. We, we don't know the, the person that they're going to become. And sometimes I think when we parent, we think we can choose who our children might be. But then as a father of, adult, uh, of adults now, uh, the oldest is 29, the next is 22, uh, I've learned you actually don't make many decisions as an adult parent. They, they are who they are. And it's, it's a bit of a revelation, right? It's a bit of an epiphany. Oh, look, this, this is who you are. How interesting that is. And so I think that's, that's a big part of what's going on in epiphany. We've just celebrated Christmas, the birth of the Christ child. And in epiphany, we get to uh, experience a revelation of who that child grew up to be. And in some ways, it met expectations. In a lot of ways, it exceeded expectations. And they're also in ways in which it kind of deconstructed some expectations. And I think that's part of what these texts speak to me about. So we see in Isaiah, we actually started the call to worship this morning with this idea that the people in darkness have seen a great light. We heard it again in the gospel reading, which quotes this passage from Isaiah. But what's going on there? This uh, contempt that had been found for Zebulun and Naphtali uh, and this gloriousness that they are going to experience with with God's deliverer, with the kind of coming of God. These places, these strange Old Testament names, Zebulun and Naphtali, were were tribes of ancient Israel, but they were on the far north, kind of the northeast uh, of the borders of, of the nation kind of in the most vulnerable, the most dangerous, the kind of risky place. They bordered uh, kind of Syria to the north, and north and east of them was was Assyria, the most powerful uh, country for hundreds of years at the time. And so they often suffered. Like when when the kings of the north would come down, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali would be the first to be overcome. And so even when we get to the time of Jesus, that area was called the Decapolis, the Ten Cities, and it was predominantly made up of Gentiles. It wasn't made up of Jews. And that's, you see this, they call it the Galilee of the Nations in Isaiah, and they refer to it as the Galilee of the Gentiles in Matthew's gospel. So what does it mean that this place is no longer to have contempt, but it's going to be glorious? I don't want to get too technical, but those, those words contempt and glorious, as they're translated here in Hebrew, have an, another meaning. The word contempt can also mean light, like lightweight, like not of much importance. And the word for glorious can mean kind of heavy, but mean heavy in the sense that it's valuable, it's weighty, it's important. And so those Far stretches, those borders, those kind of marginal folk, you know, up there in the north. We might have thought it wasn't that important. We might have thought they were kind of lightweight. They weren't in the heart of the people, the culture, you know, God's call. But what's going to happen is that God's going to come to them and that their their lightness is going to be turned into important, uh, a reality for them. And so it says in the gospel that when John the Baptist was arrested, that Jesus moved and he moved to the way by the sea. He moved to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He's over there on the border between the kind of the Jews and the Gentiles, between the people of God and the world. And he establishes his ministry there in the village of Capernaum, right on the north edge of the sea right there in the midst of all of that turmoil, right there in the kind of the historical place where the people had been battered, where the people had kind of lost their way, where the people had been kind of tossed away. And that's where we find Jesus. And that's what he's doing. It's very much, I think, what we see, that the epiphany is, that the Christ child grew up to be a man of justice and a man of righteousness, that he's not simply here to save Israel, but he's kind of here to save the world, which is especially good news for me because I'm not Jewish, right? If God was only going to be faithful in saving Israel, then I would be out of the loop, But this is where the expectation, the revelation was more, kind of much more than what was expected. That the one who would come, the Christ child who would be born, would grow up and be the deliverer, not just of Israel, but be the savior of the world. Now, in some ways, that just sounds very churchy. And I can hear that and think, oh, that's nice. Let's sing another song and kind of go our way. But I think there's a a bigger challenge that's here. It's a challenge for us to be unified. And it's a challenge for us to kind of care for those on the margins. Those who are most at risk. Because if I'm being honest with myself, I'm not like the folks of Zebulon and Naphtali. I'm more like the rich kid who grew up in Jerusalem. I mean, I'm a middle-aged well-educated, middle-class, white man. This world is made for me. I, I don't have a lot of fears. I don't worry about what's happening. Economically, I'm in good shape. I have a nice family. We go on nice vacations. We go see Mickey Mouse at Disney World with the children. So I don't always experience what it's like to be on the margins, what it's like to be on the borders of the group. Just last week, we celebrated in the United States Martin Luther King Day. And Dr. King had a lot to teach us about a beloved community, about justice, about changing the way That we see things and changing the way we do things. This coming up month in February is Black History Month. And it's an opportunity, particularly for those of us who are privileged, for those of us who are not marginalized, to have eyes to see and to have ears to hear, to realize that our gospel is more than just one of righteousness. It's not reducible to, maybe I'll sin a little less, but it's one of justice. It's one that calls us to stand up for those who have a hard time standing up for themselves. To stand against those things that will systemically kind of make our our world and our lives and our communities unjust. There are ways, of course, that we do that spiritually. We pray for the world in our prayers. And there's ways, and I think, that we can do that personally. In the same way, John Wesley would say, there can be no social holiness without personal holiness. But I would would take his phrase, and I'd also apply that to justice. Like, there can't be any social justice without also having personal justice. So it doesn't do me much good if I organize a group in my city and we try to rectify unjust practices or allocations of the, you know, the budget. If when I come home, I'm, I kick my dog and I'm unjust with my children. So I think it does start with us in terms of justice, of doing the right thing. But I think it goes beyond what we might do personally to what we might engage with collectively. Because I'd I'd like to imagine that when Christ came and he revealed who God truly was and kind of fully is, that the people of God, now who have faith in Christ, would not have kind of experienced that brokenness that we sang about earlier, about being at the end, uh, being at the edge But in reality, we know that we often find ourselves there. That is, we find ourselves at our wit's end. We find ourselves experiencing personally the kind of brokenness of the world, or maybe even sometimes collectively of the brokenness of the world. And we see this in today's epistle passage from 1 Corinthians. Paul's like, listen, folks, I haven't been gone that long, but I've heard from Chloe's people I'm not sure who Chloe is, but she had some people. <laughs> I've always wanted to have people. Like, I've always wanted to say, I'm going to have my people get with your people. But I've never really had any, any people. So you pray for me. So Paul says, I've talked to Chloe's people, and it sounds like there's divisions amongst you. Like, some say I'm of Paul, and some say I'm of Cephas, and some say I'm of Paulus, and some say I'm of Christ. And in my world, that passage of Scripture often gets uh, applied to denominationalism. Like some say I'm Baptist and some say I'm Presbyterian and some say I'm Lutheran. Well, I'm just Christian. But I'd like to propose to you today that that last one, some say I'm of Christ, is not the answer. It's on the list of things we have to be careful. Because if I say, well, I'm just of Christ and I do it differently than you, then if I'm of Christ, who are you? It has the potential to be the most divisive. So we don't know really what happened there. We don't know what what had divided the people amongst themselves. Some say that some preferred the teachings of these kind of famous uh, ministers, Paul or Peter, that's who Cephas is there, or Apollos. It'd be like uh, a sanctuary. Some saying, well, if the bishop's going to speak, I'm definitely going to be there. And others say, well, I'm only going to come when Chris Crean comes. And others say, why don't we let Father Paul preach more? Right. After all, it is his letter to the Corinthians. (laughs) I I think that might be a little shallow of a reading, though. I mean, certainly sometimes we can be that shallow. But there's another another interpretation that suggests that these people are representative of different groups, that Paul was a Roman citizen, and that carried with it a lot of privilege, and so that there were some in Corinth that were like, I'm a Roman citizen like Paul. And there are others who were kind of enthralled with Greek philosophy, and Apollos was Greek, And Apollos wasn't a philosopher. And so they're like, I'm intelligent. I'm a you know a person of science. I'm I'm a person who who is a person of wisdom who knows. Like, I need I need a a preacher who who um, can really feed me something deep. And then there's Cephas, right? Peter. And so there are some who are Jewish that were a little suspicious of the Greeks, and that they they were kind of the first-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We are the people of God. We are the descendants of Abraham. We are with Peter. So that in a very multicultural city that Corinth certainly was, you found these kind of ethnic divisions in the group. And to quote Dr. King again, the most segregated time of the week is 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. So, what was Paul to do? Paul's, Paul's answer seems to be about baptism. And this, this is the only kind of text this week that kind of deals with baptism, a major theme of epiphany. And Paul's like, God bless them, he's like, I'm glad... I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Well, except for, you know, this fellow and that other guy. And then I baptized everyone in that other person's house. And if I baptize anybody else, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> I love it. I love that, that Paul kind of works himself into a corner there a bit. It's, there's, there's a certain earthiness and humanness to it. But he says, You were not baptized into Paul. You were baptized into Christ. And that's who we are. Before we're Americans, we're Christians. Before we identify with any uh, racial group, we're Christians. Before we identify with any political group, we're Christians. Before we identify with any socioeconomic group, We're Christians. We have been baptized into Christ. We profess our faith in Him. We renounce the evil one and His works. And that is our baptism. And it's that baptism that we remember when we pray, when we cross ourselves. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're remembering that to whom we have been baptized into. It's a way of renewing our baptismal vows. In some church traditions, at the back of the sanctuary, they'll have holy water, so you'll actually kind of reenact your baptism just a bit with the water. So you touch the water and then cross yourself. And you're just recommitting yourself to being a person of Christ, to being this one who has been revealed to us, this one who calls us beyond our borders. Out into the margins, because in the Isaiah passage, the promise there that uh, Zebulun and Naphtali will somehow be included again is good news. But the work of Christ seems to go even beyond that. So Moses said, "Love your neighbor," and and what I what he meant by neighbor is your fellow Jew. Your, your fellow Israelite, your fellow Hebrew, I guess to be more exact, in his time. But Jesus will say, You have heard it said, love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So I'm not sure I have any enemies. I don't think I do. <laughs> Certainly, I don't think I have any enemies here. Hope not. But whoever that is for you, that other, particularly that other that you think is dangerous, that other that might put you at risk, that's the one that Jesus has called us to love, which is exactly what he does in his life and death and resurrection. Those who would kill him. Which is us. He loved. When we still had enmity with God. God loved us. While we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And that we celebrate. We celebrate in baptism and we celebrate as we come to the table. The table, Jesus' invitation to once again receive our forgiveness, to be welcomed at the table of the Lord, and to sit at the table with folks that perhaps we might have thought would have been disqualified, disqualified. See, when Jesus established his ministry there in Capernaum, just north there, there was a major road, and tax collectors kind of set at a tax booth, and you'd have to pay your taxes, I'm like a like a toll road of sorts. And he calls Levi from there. So one of one of the people sitting at the table with Jesus is this tax collector. And another is Simon the zealot. The zealots were militant. They resisted Rome with force. They praise God and pass the ammunition. I'm going to kill me a Roman today. And they were particularly not fond of tax collectors. These compromisers. These people that just went along with the worldly system. We can't have those folks around here. They're dangerous. They lead us astray. They're unholy. And at Jesus' table, you look one direction, and there's the zealot. You look the other direction, and there's the tax collector. And I think if we keep looking in either direction, we can see all sorts of other folk. Different people who think differently than we do. Who behave differently than we do. Who come from different places than where we come from. And we can see them all around. And that's the Christ that is revealed to us in Epiphany. The one who goes to the border, to the edge, to those who are at risk, and establishes the ministry there. So to say, we're all in this together. So my hope, my prayer for you all today, this week, is that the same kind of joy of the Lord that is spoken of in this passage, this joy at the harvest, this increasing joy, would come to sanctuary, that you would experience the joy of the Lord, that it would give you strength to respond to this call to think of the other first. Love never, love never fails, we sang. It, and I, I mean, that, was, that song was kind of quoting that passage out of 1 Corinthians 13. It, it doesn't count wrongs. It doesn't, doesn't keep track of those things. And it puts the other first. I'll close with this. It's an interesting passage. I'm glad we sang it this morning. I think it fits with these texts. But there is one problem. Like I'm, I'm used to hearing that passage. Love is patient, love is kind, yada, yada, yada. But where am I used to hearing it? Like what context do you typically hear that read in? In weddings, yeah. So if you just had a wedding and you read that passage or you're about to get married and you're planning on reading that passage, please feel free to go ahead and do so. <laughs> but do so with this in mind. Paul's not talking about a wedding. That passage of Scripture doesn't mention marriage metaphorically, more or less literally. Paul is not, that, that wonderful statement about love, Paul's not treating that as some high bar, that if, you know, in the blessings of God, if you ever got up to that with any other person, then you should marry them and let them be partners for life. God is, God is saying, God is saying, through Paul, that this is the low bar. This is the expectation for us, the people of God. This is how we should be treating each other, and this is how we should be treating the world. Love never, never fails. Amen? Amen. Amen.